You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. All right, if we can get started, I'd like to uh, kick off the thing. First, I'd like to welcome everyone to the 2019-2020 academic year. This is our first book panel of uh, this school year. And today we have the great uh, opportunity to have a serious conversation about Daniel Aldrich's Black Wave, how network governance shaped Japan's uh, 311 disasters. Uh, the um, uh, Professor Aldrich is a professor at Northeastern University, and um, and so we'll be discussing his book. This is a very important project um, that's in this book that for us here, because it's part of a project that his book isn't part of it, but we were part of studying these issues having to do with disaster and recovery. And we took a lot of that inspiration in our conversations from a puzzle from John Stuart Mill uh, way back when uh, in Principles of Political Economy. He says uh, that uh, one of the great shocks of mankind is the great rapidity with which countries recover from a state of devastation. Uh, the disappearance in a short time of all traces of mischief is done by earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, ravages of war. Uh, an enemy lays waste of a country by fire and sword and destroys and carries uh, away nearly all the movable wealth existing in it. Uh, the inhabitants are ruined, and yet after a few years, everything starts to come back. Why would that be that it comes back? And so one of the real mysteries that we've always been examining, and what are the institutional preconditions under which countries or regions or whatever can bounce back from these disasters, and what are the, the difficult times when they have. And this has been uh, a very uh, big part of our research. This particular book um, examines why uh, survival rates were so exceptionally high, considering the power of the earthquake and the tsunami, uh, and investigates the recovery process and why recovery and rebuilding uh, rates varied so much by region and municipality. Um, and so this is uh, uh, right up our alley. To discuss these uh, books today, we have uh, two uh, distinguished guests. Uh, Arnold uh, Howitt, um, who uh, is a uh, lecturer at Harvard's uh, Kennedy School of Government and a senior advisor of the Roy and Lilla Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. He co-directs the pro uh, program on crisis leadership, which is jointly sponsored by the Ash Center and the Taubman Center for State and Local Government. Um, he is the author of six books, including Natural Disaster Management uh, in the Asia Pacific. And we also have uh, Professor Laura Grube of Beloit uh, College. Uh, she has strong ties to Mercatus, as many of you know. Uh, being an alum, alum, I always get this wrong. It's, I, I know, alumna, alumna. Okay, uh, alum. She's a former student of mine, um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> rather than screwing up my language, uh, I'm thrilled with it, Laura. So, uh, and and uh, she's also uh, received 
uh, summer fellowships, dissertation fellowships, and she co-authored two books, including Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster uh, with Virgil Storr and, and Stephanie Halfley. And uh, so the way the ground rules are going to go here is that uh, Daniel's going to have a floor first, and then, uh, then we'll hear from Arnold, and then we'll hear from Laura, okay? And then after that, we'll open it up for Q&A. Okay, thank you. Daniel, the floor is yours. So thank you all much for coming today, and a big thank you to the GMU Mercatus Center. Uh, Pete, Stephanie, Virgil, uh, everyone else who's been here. About two years ago was a book conference. During that conference on campus, I thought about quitting and becoming an urban farmer. Um, <laughs> that's how in intense some of the feedback was at the time about the book. So the good thought is if it's really bad, it's your fault. And if it's really good, it's your fault. So either way, I'm blameless today. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the work you put into the project and for being here today. Uh, I want to just really quickly talk about some themes rather than hawking the book, which I will afterwards perhaps, but um, some themes in the book. One is that I began thinking about this book soon after this triple disaster began in Japan. This is now seven and a half years ago, uh, after March the 11th, 2011. And I saw immediately that the kind of weird responses that policymakers and decision makers had didn't fit the data. I'll tell you two things that I saw. One is it's really common to hear people ask you, are you ready for a disaster? By which they mean, do you have some kind of kit, right? The disaster kit. Maybe it's got your favorite copy of Hayek or, or uh, Polanyi, right? Maybe it's got food and water. Maybe it's got, I don't know, batteries for your cell phone. And this kind of very individualized response that we're asked over and over, are you ready? Are you prepared? That's one sort of extreme response I didn't like. And the other extreme response was what I see both in Japan and America is this sort of a large scale construction project response. We'll solve crisis during and after by pouring money into public works, right? It'll be the Army Corps of Engineers in New Orleans saving the city from future disasters. It'll be Japan's massive 200 kilometers of offshore tsunami walls. Somehow these two responses of individualization or mass top-down approaches didn't seem to fit what I saw. And really, I, I think there are three questions I tried to answer in the book, right? The first one is, who survives a major shock? You know, we often think about this in terms of vulnerability, right? Maybe someone's really, really young or really old. That data didn't pan out very well at all. Or maybe who has their kit also didn't make a difference. And what we found early on, and this was a team project really uh, with help from Japanese graduate students and researchers, was what really determined recovery, who got through that and lived to survive, was about the community community-level characteristics. Was it that you lived in a community that was interactive, cohesive, had strong social ties to each other? Or were you living in a community where people were afraid to walk around at night? People didn't know their neighbors' last names. They didn't take the time to go to the park with their dog, right? Those kind of small mundane activities, I believe strongly, really prepared individuals much more than any large-scale seawall or individual kit did. That very first question, who survives, I believe, comes very much from where do you live, how do you interact in that community, in that neighborhood? So that's the first thing I thought about. The second question was then, who rebuilds? After the shock is gone, and we have this long-term question, is it New Orleans or Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Harvey, too many examples in North America, who rebuilds the fastest there? And again, here you often hear all kinds of theories that we have, right? Is it a wealthy community? Is there private insurance in the community? Do they have a strongly organized local whatever? And here I found very much that what drove, at least in Japan, the recovery process were vertical ties. Did your community, your city, your village have strong connections to decision makers with levers of power, 
someone like, think about Ted Kennedy, for example, or Harry Reid, someone who could pull that, that lever and that goes construction firms to come to your city and build houses and schools rather than making money someplace else, right? Those abilities to nudge larger tail decision making from the top really mattered at this second stage. And the third question I tried to ask was then, who thrives? Now, we had a major radiological disaster in Japan. Whatever your feelings about nuclear power, whether you think it's necessary to stop global, global warming or whether you think it's a danger, whatever your feelings are, we had 140,000 people who had to evacuate, some in two hours from homes, and they haven't gone back to some communities like Futaba ever. They've gone back to pick up food or water or whatever they had behind, they, maybe their knickknacks, but they really can't go back and live maybe for decades. If an entire part of Japan that is now a ghost town, and I've been there with my students now several times, it's quite striking if you can go to Japan, by the way, and toward these areas, there are more ostriches and dog packs than people there, right? These animals now are thriving in the absence of human beings, and you see these you know, nine-foot weeds growing through the sides of houses that have fallen over uh, since this event eight years ago now. But those individuals who fled, how are they doing, right? What's their mental state now? And you think about all the stresses that they faced, right? Of course, being near a nuclear power plant that's melting down would make you, I hope, think about, is my health okay? Is my family's health okay? That's the first thing I would think about. But broader things, right? Are you paying two mortgages on the home that you had near the Fukushima plant? and the new home that you have to buy. For many years in Japan, they had this dual mortgage problem. Banks didn't forgive that mortgage immediately. We also had all kinds of problems of livelihoods. Do you find a new job? Do you wait to see what happens before you get a new job? Many of communities received government aid or aid from TEPCO, the utility responsible. So does that drive down then getting a new job? You'll live on that assistance for a while? Will it make you less certain about making decisions? So all kinds of uncertainty and anxiety in these communities. What helps them then regain their mental resilience, their mental strength over time? And again, here, it wasn't questions about having money or private insurance or being young or being old. Here again, the best predictor of regaining mental strength and mental balance after this massive disaster were having known neighbors, people that you lived right nearby. And for me, the cool thing about these findings was the following. Oftentimes, we think about disasters either as being really, really far away or my own responsibility, right? It's my job to build that kit right, with Hayek and, and uh, Polanyi inside it. But perhaps, in fact, there are things that we can do on a daily basis that will strengthen the communities where we live. Activities that we can undertake, whether it's in Virginia or in Rikus and Takata, that would build these kind of connections that we have. And part of the book really pushes hard, what can we do differently in thinking about disasters beyond the standard operating procedures, right? Beyond just building more seawalls, beyond just going out and making sure you have your batteries and your food and water, what can we as individuals do, as members of communities do, to change lives there? And I had the chance to work with a few projects in Japan, one's called Ibasho, and the idea is very simple. Is it possible, even post-disaster, to artificially create new social ties, to encourage individuals to build up new relationships, to invest time and trust in people they haven't met before? And the answer we found was unambiguously, absolutely. Even for the elderly who have a harder time making connections than someone like you guys, uh, it is very possible for them to build those kind of social ties through programs in their community. And this program was so success successful, in fact, the World Bank funded us for programs now in Nepal and in the Philippines. So I think, for me, there's a lot of good news from this project. You know, one is Japan, for the massive size of this event, did pretty well. The 18,000 foreign people whose lives were lost, I believe that's far smaller than we would have found, for example, in an India or a Haiti or perhaps even a China. So somehow Japan had in place 
pretty good institutions at the national, the regional, and the local levels. But beyond that, many communities had these strong social ties, the abilities to work collectively as those hazards and risks were coming in on them, to save lives working together collectively. The idea going back perhaps to de Tocqueville, if you want to go back to our, our roots again, the concept of associations and working collectively and collective action. And it's also possible as well not to see these social ties as set in stone, that somehow the ties that we have right now are the ties that we'll have in the future. It's very much possible, I believe, to build these kind of connections wherever we live in the world. So for me, the biggest message would be we often invest over and over again in physical infrastructure. Have we built the right building codes, the right walls, right? Are we core of engineered berms? But in reality, it's about social infrastructure. Do we have ties and connections? Do we have parks and libraries and sidewalks? Those daily small choices that we make where we live, I believe strongly influence our outcome. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm very glad to be back here at the Mercatus Center and uh, very glad to see the turnout for uh, the session. Um, I'm going to try, I think that uh, it, it's a pleasure really to be here to celebrate uh, Daniel's book uh, and uh, to be able to uh, talk about it as a welcome addition to the literature on um, disaster response and recovery. Um, and most particularly about one of the most severe uh, catastrophes uh, in this century, uh, the, what often is called the triple catastrophe, the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear accident that affected Northeast Ch uh, Japan. Um, in this presentation, I'd like to do three things. First, uh, identify what I think are some of the signal contributions that Daniel has made uh, in this book uh, about Japan. And secondly, uh, because I also have been researching this, although I am by no means as speedy at getting my publications out as Daniel has been, um, but I've uh, been to Japan a number of times and spent several summers there uh, doing field research in some of the same places that Daniel has visited. Um, I'd like to uh, perhaps, pardon? I'm sorry. Um, I would like to, uh, because many of you perhaps have never been to Japan, and if you have, you probably haven't visited the disaster area. Um, I've dragged my wife around for four summers. Uh, I've dragged my wife around for four summers uh, going to uh, disaster sites, which um, um, she very good-heartedly regards as a vacation. Um, I thought that it would be useful just to give you a feeling, visual feeling, of what this disaster was like. That. Um, will perhaps uh, make concrete some of the things that Daniel has written about. And then finally, at the end, I'd like to make a few comments uh, about the research um, and about things that might go a bit beyond what Daniel has chosen to write about. Um, so I think that uh, Daniel starts out by asking, as he just described to us, a crucial question. Why did some individuals or areas fare better than others in the, both in the initial disaster response, um, actually in saving themselves in the response that came after the event, and then in the very long period of recovery, which is still ongoing, as his book makes very clear. Um, and I think that um, by highlighting two crucial uh, drivers of effective disaster preparedness, Daniel has made a signal contribution. And those two uh, drivers are one that he just emphasized, uh, social capital, 
And the second is the governance structures uh, of Japan, uh, both at the national level and at the prefectural, uh, which is essentially a province or a state, uh, and also at the local government level. Um, and he's presented this, I think, in a way uh, that is um, extremely useful. Uh, it's a layered analysis that starts out by focusing on how individuals experience the disaster and how the social networks that individuals were embedded in, sometimes very narrow social networks, as he said, the people who lived nearby were the people in their uh, families, uh, but also sometimes larger and more extensive and more complicated social networks. Secondly, he looked uh, built up from the individual to the community and municipal level um, and looked both at community institutions uh, like the city government, uh, but also uh, at the structure of NGOs and NPOs that operated in that area. Um, and to some extent, uh, although not too extensively, on some of the companies and businesses in the area. Um, then he built up to the prefectural level. Um, and um, by contrast with the United States, where states, our state structure uh, gives a fair amount of autonomy to states in doing, making choices, uh, Japan is a much more centralized system. Um, and so the state, the prefectures became intermediaries between the national government on the one side and the uh, communities on the other, an uncomfortable position for them in some sense. Um, and um, Daniel describes some of the interactions and strategies that they followed. And finally, the national government, um, including the core ministries, uh, but also some of the special agencies and um, other structures of the government. And finally, a brief section on, on international uh, connections. So I, th I think that that, that the nature of that analysis is well worth reading. I think it dramatizes for the reader the different actors and stakeholders in a way that analyses do not. And I think uh, in the disaster literature, um, it has been the case that uh, it has tended to be dominated by um, sociologists who have looked at demographic issues and uh, other kinds of um, of issues that sociologists are interested in, planners, um, and with the exception of the Mercatus Center, I should say, economists and political scientists have not been as well represented in the literature on disasters uh, as sociologists and uh, planners have been. And so I think that uh, Daniel's analysis really adds a good deal to the uh, our understanding of this and, and stakes out some ground that has been understudied in other settings. Um, so let me show you my slides without spilling water on all this electronic equipment. Um, so the, this actually is a, um, this is a photograph of members of the uh, Japanese self-defense force. Um, I learned in my research in Japan something, which is that Japan does not have a military. It has a self-defense force. Um, it's barred from having a military. But this is actually the Japanese army. Um, and this gives you a sense of the uh, destruction. I believe that this is a picture of, of Kesanuma, um, and this boat is pretty famous. It was lifted up from the harbor and floated a mile or a mile and a half inland, deposited there. It stayed there for several years. They were thinking of making it a museum, uh, and, uh, but there was community opposition to doing that. So let me, I want to focus on a single community uh, that Daniel writes about extensively, 
uh, Rikas and Takata, uh, Japan. Um, he writes about it in some places as Rikas and Takata. Um, and then in other places, he describes coastal town, which uh, bears an exceptionally close correspondence, both to the town itself and to some of the people who work there. Um, I have no idea whether it's actually Rikas and Takata or not. Um, but this gives you, a, this shows um, uh, Rikas and Takata just before the tsunami. Uh, it is set on the sea. It has a large uh, area of, of housing and uh, commercial development. There is a hospital. There are um, a variety of recreational facilities. This is a tourist center for local people and a forest of 60,000 pine trees uh, that were partly an environmental initiative and partly uh, supposed to slow down a tsunami if it ever arrived, uh, some farmland and a river, uh, which turned out to be the way that uh, the tsunami actually went quite far inland up the river. Um, so that is, that's Rikas and Takata before uh, the tsunami, and that's Rikas and Takata after the tsunami. 10% uh, of the population of Rikas and Takata, there were 24,000 people in the community roughly, and almost 2,000 of them perished in the tsunami. Uh, the mayor, who's quite an unusual person, um, uh, when the, he had taken office just a month or two before uh, the tsunami occurred, he, when the earthquake happened, he spoke to his wife on the telephone, and he, um, uh, she said that she was headed home. Uh, their two children were in school. They had an elementary school and a middle school student, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that telephone call was the last time he heard from his wife. She apparently was swept away by the tsunami. And so he was the new mayor of a city that has been virtually destroyed. 80% of the housing was destroyed in the city. Uh, he is a widower, a new widower, and is responsible for his two young children and a city that he has to put back on the road. He is now just starting his third term as mayor. He's been quite successful. So <coughs> before after. I first visited Rikas and Takata in um, August of 2012, about 15 months uh, after the tsunami. This is a picture of the town gymnasium um, that was designated as a tsunami shelter. It was supposed to be safe. Uh, that's the inside of the gymnasium. There were about 300 people there. Three survived who were able to cling to the, the roof of the, um, to the rafters of the gym and everyone else perished. Uh, and you can see all the wrecked fire engines and vehicles uh, uh, that remain there. And note that this is 15 months later. They're still uh, dealing with the wreckage. Um, I came back a year later, and there was a good deal of progress made in clearing away wreckage. You can see they've got it piled up in construction. Uh, they were starting to clear some of the areas. And this is the deputy mayor of Rikas and Takata, who was uh, a loaned executive from, I believe, the cabinet secretariat, uh, sent from the national government to help out. And he was showing us plans that he had made, uh, not that he had made, that the city was making for uh, reconstruction and how they were going to reconfigure um, physical development. Um, this is Mayor Toba up here speaking to me. Um, this is now four years later, July of 2015, which was my next visit there. Uh, there are still little memorials all over the city, uh, which is an indication of the social capital that Daniel has talked about. There was, I believe, a new warning system of, that could uh, tell 
alarms that sound system that could warn people that something was coming. Um, and this will give you an a, a little bit of an idea of how powerful and big the tsunami was. Note here is, is a car, a truck, this is a gas station, and the gas station sign is way up. This is the height of the tsunami. This was right on the seaside. It was maybe 150 yards from the ocean. So it was almost 60 feet tall uh, as it came into the city. Um, Daniel describes in some detail the uh, effort that they made uh, to accomplish two things. They cut off the top of a mountain uh, to create flat land where they could build housing that would be safer. And they have a huge um, uh, system, a conveyor belt in which they fed uh, the, the uh, dirt and other and rock uh, and then distributed around the community in order to uh, build up the land uh, so that they're raising everything so that it will be 12 and a half meters or about 12 and a half meters must be about almost 40 feet above sea level and you can see this is still four years after they're starting to fill in this is the the scale of the conveyor belt um, bulldozers that are working up there in the distribution system uh, different as it got down into the central area it split off and they sent uh, dirt all over the place um, four years after, they were already building some homes, but you can see in the top picture uh, that they're building apartment buildings that would hold uh, perhaps 50, 75, or 100 units. Again, something that Daniel talks about um, as perhaps not being conducive to building uh, neighborhood spirit and social networks. But there were still many people in, um, many people in temporary housing. Uh, these are kind of trailer-like uh, places. Note this is still four years after, and people are still living in these. This is one, two, three, four units. They're quite small. Um, one of the people that uh, both Daniel and I have become friendly with, who's in effect a deputy mayor of the city, a businessman who had worked for the UN and uh, in major positions in uh, uh, US corporations, took us to visit an old family friend of his who was living in one of these temporary houses. But you can see this is the kitchen. Uh, not a good place to live for four years. Um, he was about 68 or 70, and he was living in this place with his mother. Um, the uh, six years, June of 2017, um, you can still see they're still building up, not completed yet. Uh, the seawall, this gives you a little bit of a sense of the scale of the seawall, and Daniel talks about the, some of the effects of having a seawall that high um, uh, covering up the ocean. Remember, this was a place where there was recreational area, um, environmental things, and the seawall extends. I'll show you a picture in a second. Um, the plans for what the city is going to look like have advanced considerably, um, but there still are people, six years later, living in temporary housing uh, in little developments that are not exactly a place that we would want to live. Um, but at the same time, the, ta the city has made many improvements. There is a brand new fire and public safety and police station that has been built. And this is one view that makes it look much smaller of the community center uh, that the um, uh, country of Singapore um, donated to Rikas and Takata. And Daniel talks a, uh, a good deal about the um, efforts that this community made 
to supplement money that it was getting from the national government by reaching out uh, to international um, uh, sources. Um, also, six years later, you can see some of these apartment complexes are now in operation, uh, children playing outside. Um, again, the question of whether very large developments like this, which replaced uh, single-family and two-family houses, is desirable or not. Um, and on the mountaintop, where they cut back the mountain, there are starting to be a number of homes built in various stages of development. This is uh, one of them at, uh, in an early stage, another one, um, and some of the finished units are quite, quite lovely. These are obviously going to be upper middle class and uh, better off people uh, living there. Uh, they also have been successfully redeveloped a shopping center, um, beating out some um, bureaucratic obstacles that the prefectural government and the um, national government put in place uh, in order to qualify for that. Uh, a very lovely food court um, and construction is still going on, still going on there. This complex also has a, a quite lovely library and a number of other kinds of community facilities. Um, but uh, even uh, last summer, um, there's seven years after the tsunami, there still was a great deal of uh, construction going on. Here you can see the stretch of this gigantic seawall all across the area of the beach. So that gives you in the focus on one community, which has been much more successful than the average community in rebuilding, uh, but was also much more uh, extensively damaged than, than the average community. It gives you at least a little bit of a sense of what, uh, of what that disaster looks like and uh, what the country has been contending with. Um, I want to make a few comments now. Um, I hope I still have driving a little bit of time. Um, that. Uh, of ways that research could go, I think, beyond the things that, that Daniel has talked about. Um, one is that, uh, although Daniel appropriately and I think importantly calls attention to the uh, uh, impacts of governance, um, and he describes in a number of ways um, what uh, that governance consists of, the piece it is in fact a multi-dimensional concept and the pieces of it are not quite put together into a um, an over a comprehensive model of the ways in which governance um, might affect uh, the recovery. And um, secondly, uh, both of us are political scientists, but we're political scientists of uh, very different stripes. Um, my work uh, is extremely quantitative. I have page numbers in it. And Daniel uh, actually does uh, uh, quantitative analysis and uh, focuses on getting data sets, in this case, often of 140 communities in some places, over 100 communities uh, in other places in the book. I tend to look much more um, at a smaller sample. Our work has uh, been a more intensive look at nine communities, five that were affected by the nuclear accident, which we haven't talked about at all, uh, and uh, uh, another four or five that were affected by primarily by the tsunami. The nuclear communities also were affected by the tsunami, but they had the added problem of the nuclear accident. Um, and I, so I think that more work on the processes that were there, and also the way in which those processes overlay each other in a time sequence. Um, one of the disadvantages of the strategy that Daniel has adopted of 
focusing on different levels in a layered analysis, each of which covers a time span, is that it doesn't get put back together uh, as much as I would like to see anyway in terms of what was happening at particular stages of the recovery. Um, in uh, the section on municipalities, um, one thing that uh, I think is extremely interestingly covered and which I learned a lot about was the role of city council members uh, in, uh, in terms of making alliances and reaching out to national figures. Um, but Daniel's analysis doesn't speak very much because of data uh, inadequacies, uh, the difficulty of getting surveys uh, with mayors doesn't deal with the role that the mayors as chief executives of these communities, many of them quite small, uh, but still the chief executive role uh, doesn't get developed, I think, as much as it would be interesting to see. And then finally, in ways that I won't go into in great detail, in the chapter on international comparisons, um, there's an assessment of China, which um, uh, Daniel points to as, as in some ways, um, less successful in, uh, in a number of dimensions than Japan was. Um, I think there's an unanswered question there, which is that um, even on the one hand, as Daniel argues, China ha uh, Japan has uh, extensive ways of consulting the public uh, and of having um, uh, the input of public opinion into its decision-making processes, uh, although he also argues that they were not in a number of ways responsive to some of that citizen uh, input, uh, but that they are, are in general more flexible. Nonetheless, there has been relatively little change in the major ways in which uh, uh, Japan deals with uh, disaster uh, uh, response and disaster recovery. And on the other hand, China has uh, essentially very few channels by which ordinary citizens can express uh, their feelings about what disaster preparation and uh, response can do. And uh, in the Wenchuan earthquake of 2008, a couple years before this, um, about 80,000 people perished, so four times as many as in, the, um, in Japan. Um, and uh, many of, about 10,000 of them, give or take, were uh, school children who died when their schools collapsed in what uh, people cynically refer to as dofu construction. And um, so Daniel talks about the fact that, that um, social capital in China has been insufficient to produce safer areas. On the other hand, uh, as my own research has shown in China, uh, at least shown to me, uh, there has been uh, considerable um, investment uh, in procedures for um, uh, emergency response, a considerable investment in building much, much better preparedness and um, integration of response organizations, uh, which is uh, weak in, uh, in Japan and had been weakened and still is to some great degree in China, um, and also a considerable investment in retrofitting housing uh, and public structures to make them more seismically resistant, which was badly needed in, in China. And I think the explanation that Daniel advances, at least for China, doesn't work completely in explaining why that post-SARS uh, and post-Wenchuan earthquake um, improvements uh, happened, even though the channels of public uh, input were blocked and are not paid much attention to. So I, in conclusion, let me just say that I found, even though I have done a lot of first-hand research in Japan and um, 
you know, have a number of ideas about these things. I've learned a lot uh, by reading Daniel's book. Um, I think it's in many ways an excellent introduction to people who might want to read about um, disaster response and recovery. Uh, even if Japan is not your primary interest, it's well worth reading. Uh, and uh, I definitely commend the book to all of you. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much to the Mercatus Center uh, for this invitation to provide comments on Daniel's book. His work has absolutely shaped my thinking in the role of social capital and post-disaster recovery. Um, so I, I have to admit that I am someone that has, um, so I, I came into this book with little knowledge about Japan. Instead, my knowledge of disaster really is focused on the United States. So. Um, we have two experts on Japan in this room um, that, that maybe can clarify some of the details for us. Um, so disasters are devastating events. According to the Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, there have been an increasing number of natural disaster events worldwide in the last century. Um, so in 1950, there were 23 reported natural disasters worldwide. In 1975, 63, and in the year 2000, 411. The economic costs of natural disaster have also been rising from hundreds of millions to hundreds of billions of dollars. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration estimated that natural disasters cost the U.S. alone uh, $91 billion last year. So disaster studies is an important area of inquiry because natural disasters literally impact tens of millions of people each year. For social scientists, and here I'm going to kind of expand on some of what um, Pete was talking about, disasters provide an opportunity to learn about the workings of a social system. Okay? So in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the Mercatus Center led a five-year research program to um, study rebuilding and recovery along the Gulf Coast of the United States. In a paper in the Southern Economic Journal, Betke and co-authors described disasters as a natural experiment for social scientists. So they said, quote, the tragic dimensions of the event in terms of lives lost and lives disrupted must never be forgotten. But the opportunity to learn about the resiliency of social systems also must not be lost, end quote. So disaster shines a light on the essential components of a social system. So where do individuals turn for assistance? Do they rely on family and friends, community organizations, or national organizations like the Red Cross or FEMA? How do communities engage in problem solving, for example, organizing hot meals for local residents, or perhaps collecting information about who has returned in order to petition the local power company to restore electricity? What are the focal points or signals that residents read to determine when or whether to begin rebuilding? So I think Dan's book, Black Wave, brings attention to the very important topic of disaster studies and specifically advances our understanding of how social capital and formal governance structures work together to support rebuilding and recovery. So I'll offer a little bit of a, a summary. Some of this is going to overlap um, with Arnold's comments. So again, Dan has um, given us this case of the triple disasters in Japan. So this took, took place in 2011. 
Those triple disasters were an earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster. And he argues that the ability to recover is determined by both the prevalence of social capital and also good governance, including formal structures of government. Aldrich describes social capital as, quote, connections between people, whether thin, as between people who meet only occasionally, if at all, or thick, as between, as between family, kin, and neighbors who have regular contact, end quote. Governance, and I think that Arne's comments here about kind of the working definition of governance, um, I found in Dan's work to encapsulate both the branches of government so core ministries and agencies, and then the horizontal ties, for example, that connect local governments with civil society organizations, as well as um, what Dan was emphasizing, these vertical ties that connect local government to regional government to national government. Um, he also mentions that good governance is characterized by transparency, uh, responsiveness, and public goods provision. So I think by defining governance in this way, he's showing how social capital here is still the lubricant that allows for information exchange and action throughout the system. So I'm going to organize my comments um, by focusing first on what I see as the contributions and strengths of the book. And then I'm going to leave us with some questions. Um, again, I think there's some overlap with Arne's um, questions here. And maybe we can take some of those up in Q&A. In the field of economics, interviews are de-emphasized as a method and way of understanding social phenomenon. So in disaster studies, interviews, though, I would argue, are essential to exploring how people carve out strategies to survive during disaster and to begin rebuilding. For example, an interview allows the researcher to ask how people made sense of warnings about the impending disaster in the immediate aftermath. Uh, what resources they perceived as being available to them, and also what challenges they confronted as they began to rebuild. One of the key strengths of Aldrich's book is that he has interviewed numerous residents and elected officials impacted by these triple disasters. Um, so the interview data is really the focus of the second chapter, which is also called the individual level, and then from there he builds up to the city level, to the what we would say state level and national. Um, and really he's driving home this point that we have to understand how people on the ground were making sense of the situation. Aldrich's interview data provides a glimpse into how people were making decisions around whether or not to evacuate. For example, residents described how experiences with past disasters, many of which were less severe, shaped their expectations and therefore they did not feel the same sense of urgency and delayed evacuation. In the immediate aftermath, victims described who and what they were able to rely on, pointing to the assistance of family members first, then neighbors, and then a select other um, organizations, including neighborhood associations. By placing these narratives at the beginning of the book, Aldrich also helps the reader to quickly develop a depth of understanding about the devastation and the challenges that victims faced in the aftermath. A second strength of the book, and I think what the major contribution to the literature here, is how Aldrich combines the social capital literature with the literature on effective formal governance. Um, in particular, I think he adds to the literature on social capital and formal governance by pointing to particular mechanisms through which social capital can help 
or hinder formal governance. So I have a few examples. Um, so focusing on the Miyagi Prefecture, which is one of the three states, um, Dan describes how connections between residents and those with political power or those vertical linking ties can be an effective tool in getting things done. In the Miyagi Prefecture, residents and local nonprofits had these connections with regional government officials, and these ties proved to be important in both identifying needs after the disaster and then also supplying resources to meet those needs. So another example he gives us are horizontal ties across cities um, that facilitate cooperation and action. These horizontal ties, um, Dan explains, help to create sister city agreements, which stipulate that a particular city will come to the aid of another in an instance of natural disaster. So through these agreements, outside towns and cities provided logistical and administrative support, and they even, um, in many cases, sent local government officials on loan to ensure that offices could still function. The final strength that I'm going to mention here is really that um, Dan doesn't adopt rose-colored glasses. Um, so he recognizes what in the literature is referred to as the dark side of social capital. Um, and he highlights some key public choice concerns with government involvement in disaster response and recovery. Okay. For example, using regression analysis, Aldrich considers whether clientelism or the deliberate redistribution of economic benefits to specific politician supporting groups explains recovery levels after the triple disasters. So he finds that the immediate conditions and damage matter, but he also finds that the number of powerful politicians uh, representing the area and the level of support for the prominent political party also explain recovery. Further, Aldrich describes how public money allocated to disaster relief and recovery was ill-spent or misused. So here I have two quotes. Um, there's one, and he says, quote, investigations revealed that by the end of the first year after 311, up to 25% of the money set aside for reconstruction had gone to unrelated projects, end quote. He also says, quote, pushes for resilience, and I think Dan said this at the beginning, um, his comments, merely continued government support for massive projects, often boondoggles that offered dubious value to locals, end quote. Um, all right, so I'm going to switch gears here uh, to some of the, the questions that I had after reading um, the book. The first question comes from chapter six, and this is the chapter in which um, Dan is describing how different countries here, Haiti, India and China have responded to disaster and how differences in governance can explain that variation. Okay. Um, so I'm also going to elaborate on the China example and now that Arne tells me he's an expert here I'm thinking oh gosh. Um, so the, the, chi the, China, uh, the China example um, so Aldrich describes several different aspects of response and rebuilding that are tied to system. Um, so in the case of China, are, t are explained by the authoritarian government. So he says, the central government responded quickly and funneled resources towards temporary shelters and then uh, toward rebuilding homes. 
He also mentions that the response and rebuilding process did not take into consideration the preferences of disaster victims, uh, specifically in regards to these calls for improved building codes. Um, and then he also talks about how government media certainly influenced the coverage of the earthquake and the aftermath. Um, what I found interesting is that I felt, I felt as though social capital was, was actually de-emphasized in this chapter. And maybe I was looking for a certain kind of social capital that, is not, that goes beyond um, public trust and is not specifically related to like freedom of the press. Um, so in the example of China, my question is, what do these social networks in the Communist Party look like? Do these networks extend to everyday residents? Okay, if they do not, might this also explain a disconnect between government action and the preferences of local residents? It strikes me that civil society organizations that exist in the US and facilitate uh, social networks might be less robust in China, or they probably look different. Um, we also know that authoritarian regimes have often attempted to severely limit or actively destroy civil society organizations as they serve as checks on government. Um, so without these groups, might response efforts be less able to um, kind of adapt to change? Might they also be limited in their ability to reach everyone? Um, yeah. And I, just to expand on that a little bit, I guess I'm really interested in this question of what is the relationship between the government and what civil society looks like in that country? Um, and learning from, you know, Soviet Union, we know that in different uh, time periods, the government was actively trying to eliminate certain um, civil society organizations, labor unions were a place where some people were able to get together. But how does that impact the way that people live under these governments today? Um, so that's kind of a comparative economic systems and maybe some sociology. Um, all right, and then the second question I had is on the final chapter, conclusions and recommendations. Um, so I think Dan summarizes, he summarizes his previous chapters, and he does argue that Japan uh, did well in response and recovery efforts, but says that there's still room for improvement, in particular at the national level. So here, though, I found the recommendations that um, Aldrich offers to be incomplete. So he refers to locally tailored bottom-up policies which are crafted by uh, civil society organizations, citizens, and government. So you also talk about then greater investment and quote, community-friendly physical and social infrastructure to reconstruct and strengthen social ties, end quote, which I took to imply maybe a larger group, a larger role rather for civil society organizations. But I still was looking for a little bit more um, concrete answers to for example, you say these simultaneous top-down and bottom-up initiatives. So what top-down, which I take to be government actions, are appropriate? And when should we be relying on bottom-up processes? 
what is the role of government and specifically the different levels of government. So you've, um, what Arnold was saying, this kind of layered approach. So what is the role of village, town, city versus regional, which would be prefectural um, versus national in regards to response, rebuilding and recovery? And then given that you've identified some of these public choice concerns, I wondered um, how does the role of these various levels of government take into consideration and minimize issues around corruption and misallocation of resources? So in conclusion, um, I, th I think Aldrich's book is an important contribution to our understanding of the role of social capital and formal governance in disaster response and rebuilding. Um, I think his multiple method approach adds to our depth of knowledge ab about the triple disasters. He presents an, his analysis with open eyes to the challenges and complexities in providing disaster relief and also further highlights these by offering international comparisons. So um, thank you again for the opportunity and maybe we can cover some questions. First of all, thank you so much uh, to Laura and Arne for your great reading of the book. And these are, these are great questions to which I probably have no good answers, uh, probably because uh, you know, these, are, these are good points, I think, about the weaknesses of the book. I'll start with, with Arne's points and then go to Laura's. Uh, the question about governance as a concept that's very complex, I completely agree. I think it was really challenging here to, in what I wanted to keep as a relatively quick read, so to speak, to bring it together. And I think it'd be a great follow-up project to think through how do we measure governance, especially across levels of government. And I think this is the challenge I haven't seen yet. I haven't seen one set of books that really identify at local, regional, national levels, how do you either quantify, which would be my impulse, quantify those governance structures, and then sort of you know, measure them over time. I think that's a very good point. Um, as, as is the point about process tracing as well. Uh, you know, here I had to make a choice, how much material do I cover across a massive amount of people and time and space? And you're exactly right, it's really hard to see, I think in parts of the book, what are those sort of nitty gritty processes at one point in, in time. I think that's the a consequence of using multiple methods than trying to get through uh, pretty quickly. I, I agree as well that mayors are not well covered here. Uh, we had a really t hard time getting mayors to respond. We got lots of city councilors to respond, so maybe they had more free time. Mayors, not so much. And this is again one of those moments when you measure what you can when you're in the field, and you know, I, I had to go through what I had. So we got really detailed data on how city councilors interact with both their governors and counterparts locally and national ones, but basically nothing except from a few mayors who would talk to us um, in the field. The China point's well taken. I, I also agree here as well that uh, China has pivoted in this field and been able to ironically build more, it's called administrative structures than Japan has. Japan's very much stuck with the 1970s or 1980s perspective on disasters where China has moved into the 21st century. I think that really ties well uh, actually into Laura's question uh, about China. You know, how do we understand the interactions between authoritarian systems and then local government structures, CSOs and so forth? And here I'd have to say I don't know a lot about China. I was, I was only there for about a month and a half to do this research. Um, but I think that'd be a great follow-up project as well. You know, what happens in a society where the government actively suppresses certain CSOs and actively sponsors or promotes others, clearly with a state governance structure there uh, to try and co-opt them over time. I'm not sure. Uh, the people that I talked with often were ones who couldn't speak openly about the kind of challenges that they had as an NGO in the area. 
so I had to take what they say at, at face value. I think it'd be fascinating to understand better what would it look like in China, for example, uh, I heard, and this is off the record, I heard from several organizations that they were pushed out over time. These were external organizations who had come into towns after the earthquake there, and they were gradually asked to leave as time went on until only locally government-sponsored organizations were left. So what had been an outside, broader spectrum of response became a very narrow channel for only government response. I didn't talk about that very much because, again, I was, I was asked not to, but I think that's a good example of what you're talking about here where you have this interaction between a top-down pressure and a bottom-up response. Um, the one question I can answer, though, which is the last one you asked, is about this top-down versus bottom-up. In fact, at the encouragement of, of Virgil uh, and the GME, uh, the Communicators Institute, I've actually just published a paper on this question. Under what conditions do we find what I called friction versus coordination? Where is it more likely that we see uh, a successful attempt? And there I was kind of uh, doom and gloomy, actually. Definitely no rose-colored glasses, because honestly, I could find very few good examples across time or space where, in fact, bottom-up initiatives had been met by flexible and supportive top-down ones. Uh, and what was much more common, for example, was a top-down initiative that was then exposed to take root and grow, the astroturfing kind of moment, when the government tells you, here's the new plan that you have, get on board or lose your funding. Um, I, I think here, there's a really good question about of corruption and, and misallocation. My impression would be, and again, I don't have data for this, that where we do have a stronger local civil society, it's less likely you'll find that misallocation of funds. And where local, gov where local groups, watchdogs, the press, are less able to access data or are more afraid of the consequences of speaking out against a corruption, there you'll find less corruption. And again, I don't have any data in post-disasters. Uh, one of my colleagues in New Orleans told me they, they found there's something like $450 million yes. that basically went missing in New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, in the process between when I was living there in 2005 and 2010. And that when they tried to poke around, they were told over and over again, it's okay, just, just move on. So, uh, so that's a, it's a good question. How do we know better on the ground what's happening there? But I think, again, for brave graduate students looking for a project, uh, <laughs> tracing how government funding does trickle down. I, I think the thing that I would emphasize even more would be what I saw over and over again was top-down initiatives meant local firms, local businesses weren't involved. And I think for me this is sort of the saddest consequence. The local businesses that could benefit the most from that government contract were the ones that weren't contracted by the government to do the broad-scale work. Thinking of New Orleans, for example, when over and over again it was large-scale multinational firms that didn't really actually involve local New Orleans-based ones. And Rick Wheel, by the way, at LSU has written about this a lot, how so little money from the government contracts ended up in the hands of local businesses there. So I, again, I think where there are watchdogs, the press, and an, and an active civil society, it's more likely you'll see less corruption and misallocation. But again, we need some more data to find out. All right, thank you very much. I want to uh, thank our panelists. And I, I want to congratulate Daniel on this book and uh, wish him continued success with his, his research and all of, all of you. And then I want to make a, just a few announcements. Um, uh, first, uh, the, uh, on um, October 17th at uh, 4.30 at the Center for the Arts, we will have our Ostrom speaker um, this year celebrating the 10th anniversary of Eleanor Ostrom's uh, Nobel uh, Prize. And... Uh, she is uh, the, not only the first woman, but still the only woman to have won the Nobel Prize. Um, and hopefully that might change someday soon here, um, though I don't know who 
I would pick, actually. Um, not at least, yeah, I, I got some names. Um, but, uh, um, but we're going to be celebrating that. It also happens to be October 3rd, for those of you who don't know, is actually James Buchanan's 100th birthday, um, which is uh, amazing. And Jim Buchanan is who put this university on the map. And uh, so hopefully you read some Buchanan on October 3rd. At least read what should economists do, because all of you are trying to be economists, so you should know what it is that you should be doing. Um, so do that. Anyway, the topic, uh, our speaker is going to be a very distinguished speaker, economic sociologist, Viviana Zellinger, who is at universe, uh, Princeton University. And her title of her talk will be, Why and How Do Social Relations Matter for Economic Lives? The registration is now open, so make sure you sign up for that, because it gets filled up that uh, room, so you got to make sure you're in there. Uh, second, uh, the Hayek program is hosting a conference on the future of work. Uh, some really fascinating people are in that, so you should look at the program. That's on October 11th and 12th. Registration for that is, is both free and available at the Mercatus website. And finally, we'll be having another book panel at the end of the semester on December 5th on Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson's Humanomics, uh, which uh, just was published uh, this last year. Um, and both uh, Vernon and Bart will be in, in attendance. So it's a great opportunity for all of you. Uh, for all of you that you know, this is the time that our normal uh, uh, workshop in philosophy, politics, and economics meets, 2 to 3.30. The papers will all be distributed a week in advance. Um, and uh, you know, go to the website and look at it, and you'll see. Um, we won't have a book panel and won't be set up like this. It'll be set up like a seminar room. And we can all like yell at each other and have fun, uh, and that's what part of having you know academic life is all about. Um, but anyway, welcome to the semester, and let's have a great year. And thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.